from MPB Think Radio, this is In Legal Terms, a show all about you and your rights. I'm Sharita Britt, here with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest today is Jack Nolan, Senior Associate Dean, Professor of Law, and Jesse D. Puckett, Jr., Lecturer for the University of Mississippi School of Law. This morning, we're talking about your free speech rights. Does the First Amendment grant you the right to say whatever you want without consequence? Are there certain forms of speech that are not protected? Call us with your thoughts and comments. Do you believe fully in the idea of free speech, or do you believe it should have limits and restrictions? Call us at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464, or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back right after the news. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Sherita Brent here with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest today is Jack Nolan, Senior Associate Dean, Professor of Law, and Jesse D. Puckett, Jr., Lecturer for the University of Mississippi School of Law. This morning we're talking about your free speech rights. Does the First Amendment grant you the right to say whatever you want without consequence? Are there certain forms of speech that are not protected? You can give us a call with your thoughts and comments this morning. Do you believe fully in the idea of free speech, or do you believe it should have its limits and restrictions? Call us at 877-MPB-RING, 877-672-7464, or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Professor Gershon and Dean Nolan. Good morning. Thanks for being on today. Good morning, Sharita. How are you this morning? I'm doing very well. I am kind of uh, on an Olympic high. I could, I have not been able to break away from the television. And yesterday I was shocked to see um, uh, the, the USA contestant get beat by the woman from Bahamas who dove into uh, the race. We were just talking about that off the air. So honestly, that is still on my mind. And I had a few things that I wanted to say and use my free speech on Facebook, but I did not. So <laughs> did, well, you, did you guys I, see that? I can that? interject <laughs> yeah, can I interject that we we are really proud of Sam Kendricks here in, in Oxford. Oh, yeah. uh, he is a graduate of Oxford High School and the University of Mississippi. He's in the uh, reserve, uh, uh-huh. and uh, and uh, he won a bronze last night in the pole vault. I and think that's I saw him. An American. Yeah, 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 we're proud of him. Yeah, it's always just such a, a huge measure of pride when you when you see, oh, Ole Miss or like the young lady um, Bowie, who's from Sand Hill, Mississippi. It's just, you know, you don't realize how proud you are until you see someone on television from the same area as you. So, um, yeah, so that was interesting. Uh, a lot of folks were up in arms about that uh, that loss uh, the to the uh, to the woman who won the uh, gold medal for uh, the Bahamas. And we'll talk about that later. Things on Facebook that you can and cannot say um, if you just Google free speech and Facebook, people getting fired for comments that they make on Facebook. I mean, there are tons and tons of stories, so I can't wait to get into that. Um, But we'll start first with a little background information on free speech and the First Amendment in general. We we do hear a lot about these two topics. Um, But Dean Nolan, could you talk about what these terms mean and how they relate to each other? Yeah, sure. Glad to do that. So 
the, the First Amendment free speech clause of the U.S. Constitution, that was ratified in like, the 1790s, and it, it's our specific constitutional protection that limits the federal government, and it's been incorporated through the 14th Amendment, so it limits all state and local government, and it's a, it's a legal provision that has a very specific, detailed interpretations by the U.S. Supreme Court. And what it's meant to reflect is a broader concern about free speech. So the concept of free speech is broader than the First Amendment and could have broader application than the American First Amendment. Obviously, other countries that don't have our First Amendment have free speech, and there are free speech concerns that are not necessarily protected or reflected in the First Amendment. So we've got the, the broader concept and policy concerns and then our specific legal tradition, our specific constitutional provision with the cases that interpret it. Okay, so when we talk about the um, First Amendment, what does it specifically say that even covers the free speech? Uh, we, we see the abridging, abridging the freedom of speech. What exactly does that mean to us regular folks who aren't, you know, con law uh, experts? Yeah, so Congress shall make more law. The first word of the First Amendment is Congress, and it was originally just a limit on the federal government, and it is since the 1920s. It's been applied to state and local governments, so you're protected from your city and your state government. What that means is you have a basic right to free speech, but, of course, the, the right's not absolute. Right. So there really, really are very few free speech absolutists. If you, if you think about something like a bomb threat called into a school, right, that's, that's a speech act, right, the bomb threat. No one wants to protect that. So what, what we have are a series of Supreme Court cases looking at American legal traditions and making policy judgments in many cases trying to determine what kinds of speech should be protected, what should be the unprotected categories of speech, and what legal tests should apply to different situations. It's a, I teach an entire class on First Amendment, three-quarters of which is free speech, and there are big areas that I, I don't cover. Campaign finance reform speech is an area that I don't actually teach in detail. So there is a huge body of law out there, far, far more than the average person could begin to understand, but there are lots of real-world controversies where it's, it's interesting to think about what is and what isn't protected. So do you find that your students are often surprised? Uh, are they typically under the impression that you can just say whatever you want? Um, are, are they typically surprised by the complexities of free speech? I th yeah, I think especially on the exam, they're surprised by the complexities <laughs> of free speech. Uh, it, it, is, it really is a complex set of doctrines, and there are – I think what students are most surprised about in constitutional law is how many questions are unanswered, hmm. how many questions there's either not a case or there's a case, but the case – uh, establishes a general principle, and maybe there's one application, but it's easy to come up with a hundred hypothetical fact situations that are going to be real-world cases or already have been where the answer just isn't clear. There are these things we call circuit splits where the lower courts below the Supreme Court disagree on free speech, and the Supreme Court slowly but surely resolves those circuit splits and comes up with a, an, a, an actual national rule. So the students are always surprised to find out that sometimes your free speech rights in the Fifth Circuit in Mississippi might be different from the Fourth Circuit in Virginia because those two courts disagree and the Supreme Court hasn't reconciled it. But the, uh, the doctrines are complicated, and there are lots of really interesting interactions between them. So can we talk about why free speech is, is valued so highly? It's one of those rights that I hear people barking all the time. You know, if it's not gun rights, it's my right to free speech. Mm -hmm. um, why do you think this, this one in particular is valued so highly? I think the Supreme Court, ha you know, has looked at American legal traditions and Anglo-American political philosophy, John Stuart Mill, the political philosopher, and that they articulate three just general policies. One is the search for truth. So we have this thought that there's a marketplace of ideas and ideas compete. 
and for the marketplace of ideas to work, for the search to truth to be successful, and for us to actually find the truth, the, the right answer to the questions that we're concerned with, we need to have that free debate. And if the government can come in and say, we already have the answer, or these folks can't talk, only these other folks can talk, then that's a market failure and we won't get to the truth. Another policy they cite is democracy. So the United States is a, we're a representative democracy, and we have to be able to talk about the issues for the democratic process to work. The, the government, basically, government officials work for us, and we can fire them in the election season. And so if the government could tell us what we can talk about, basically it would be our employees telling us what we can and can't talk about, and that would undermine democracy. And then there's a strong tradition just of individual self-expression. People just they, people need to say the things they want to say in order to express their autonomy. That's just a basic freedom concern. It's not necessarily specific to free speech, but it's an important component of free speech. So those reasons, searching for truth, making sure that our democratic process operates, and making sure that we have full self-expression, those, those are basically the foundational reasons for free speech. 877-MPB-RING is the number. This morning we're talking about free speech, your free speech rights. Uh, does the First Amendment give you the right to say whatever you want without consequence? Are there certain forms of speech that are not protected? We'll answer that question in just a moment, but you can call us with your thoughts and comments. Do you believe fully in the idea of free speech, or do you believe it should have its limits and restrictions? Call us at 877-MPB-RING or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. That's 877 7464. Um, so I'm curious about things like protests and demonstrations. We see a lot of those uh, sometimes when it comes to pro-choice and pro-life or um, mm -hmm. with racial tensions that have been um, in the world today. There are a lot of protests and demonstrations. Are those things examples of free speech? Yeah, well, absolutely. So um, the, the, the Supreme Court has a doctrine called the traditional public forum doctrine and in parks, uh, and streets, those sort of public areas, those are held in trust by the government for the public. And one of the things we get to do in parks and on streets is engage in political expression, and that includes protests of different kinds. Now, we don't get to turn over cars or set fires. Of course, there are limits on what you can do, but if you're there to express a political opinion, to carry signs, to chant, to sing, you're allowed to do those things. The government can put in place reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. So if I want to have a parade in downtown Houston in rush hour, right, I can't, I can't do that. They can say, well, there's going to be a parade permit and you can't be on the main road. There's all sorts of – and there's a you know specialized legal test, time, place, and manner, content neutrality tests they use. But the essential thought is that the government has to do those things irrespective of the content of the speech. So they have to treat everybody equally. So the government can't pick a side, whether it's pro-police or anti-police protesters or pro-life pro-choice protesters. The government's not allowed to pick sides. They have to allow those folks into public fora, to government property of certain kinds, to engage in protests. And, you know, reasonable restrictions there, time, place, and manner restrictions, restrictions to keep good order, all of those things are allowed. And there are lots of free speech issues that arise from those kind of protests. So one of the one of the famous lines of cases, lots of folks know this phrase, clear and present danger. Right? There's a movie from the 90s, Clear and Present Danger. That's a famous free speech test because in these protests often, you would have people incite violence. Right? They would say inflammatory things, and we'd have to decide 
you know, what is it that they said and is it protected? And you would have folks in the heat of the moment say things that were a suggestion of violence. And the Supreme Court has a test in the Brandenburg case from 1969 that says unless the speech is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless activity and likely to produce that imminent lawless activity, it's protected which means I can actually say something terrible. I could say we should kill the police officers who are guarding our free speech rights. I could say that terrible thing unless it was likely at that moment that someone would act on that, that would be constitutionally protected. And as soon as it became likely that someone would act on that, then my speech could be restricted. So as long as nobody's actually likely to do something immediately violent, and then that leads to other cases where I say something slightly different, I make a threat against the police officers, and there's a Virginia versus black and some true threat uh, doctrine cases where we're trying to distinguish what's a threat of violence versus what is incitement to others to engage in violence, and lots of really interesting lower court cases and a Supreme Court case involving Facebook on that recently. And Jack, what about, you know, uh, does this have to be truthful speech that's protected? I, I know there was something about the, the Stolen Valor Act, for yeah. example, uh, where a guy was lying about his yeah. military history. Yeah, so the, the United States versus Alvarez decision. So we protect not just truthful statements, we protect false statements of fact in many cases. Now, the, the major limit on that is fraud. So if you are, a, if you are for instance, saying I have, a, I have the Congressional Medal of Honor and you're saying that in order to get a job using that as a credential, then that's fraud and that would be unprotected. But the Stolen Valor Act was an attempt to just make it a crime for someone to claim medals they, don't, they didn't earn, they don't deserve. Maybe they didn't even have military service. Now, that's a terrible thing to do, to claim you have a purple heart when you don't is a terrible thing to do. But the Supreme Court said a mere false statement of fact not used for some kind of pecuniary gains, so not involving fraud, that's just protected speech. And part of the rationale for that is it's, we may think it's easy in some of those cases on the question of fact you did or you didn't you know, have this medal, but the, the issue becomes, in many other claims, it's harder to determine what's true and what's false. And so even in defamation law, slander and libel with public figures, you know, false statements are protected unless there's reckless disregard for the truth or falsity in those cases. So we protect, in the search for truth, part of the thought there is false statements have to be protected very strongly because we're often trying to decide what's true and the false statements often provoke the true statements and the one background thought here is the remedy for bad speech is more speech so the major remedy for false statements of fact is a rebuttal with true statements of fact all right we need to take a quick break when we get back we have alvia on the line who we'll get to when we have a few lines open if you want to join the conversation we're talking about your free speech rights you can give us a call and let us know uh, are there we'll talk about are there certain forms of speech that are not protected we'll continue that after the break call us and let us know do you believe fully in the idea of free speech or do you believe it should have limits are you all for protesting no matter what the the topic is or the issue is you have any issues with those things give us a call 877 MPB rain do you folks thinks uh, folks should have a right to post whatever they want on their Facebook or Twitter pages 877 877- 672-7464 is the number. We do have some lines open or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is Think Radio.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sharita Brent here with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law and Jack Nowlin, Senior Associate Dean, Professor of Law, and Jesse D. Puckett, Jr., Lecturer for the University of Mississippi School of Law. And uh, Dean Nowlin, forgive me for pronouncing your name wrong for the first uh, part of the show. This morning we are talking about First Amendment and free speech, and you can give us a call. Let us know your thoughts and comments. Do you believe fully in the idea of free speech, or do you believe it should have limits and restrictions? Do you think people should be able to post whatever they want on their social media pages? Uh, Do you think folks should be able to protest about whatever they want. 877-MPB-RING is the number to join the conversation. We do have some lines open. 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're going to go to the phones. Um, Alvia is in Pearl with a question. Good morning. What do you have for us? Uh, well, I have a, a question to ask you. I had an accident. A lady uh, hit my wife's car in the parking lot. It was parked where I live and... Uh, I called the police and they came out and they, they went and got the lady and brought her back and uh, I was explaining to the officer what was going on and then uh, and he, she denied she hit it and she had left and they had to go get him bring her back and her supervisor and she it was for the postal service and uh, she said she said she didn't do it and I called her a liar and and it's just like I poured hot water on that police officer he got all up in my face shouted at me and told me he, that he wasn't going to listen to me disrespect her. And I was telling him what was going on. I was calling her a liar because he said, you can't disrespect her. And I said, what do you call what she did to my wife's car, disrespect or not? And he told me to get over there and shut my mouth on my porch. And I was trying to testify. I was trying to tell him what was going on. And another car, a police car, pulled up behind me and one in front of the officer in front of me. I think he was trying to get me upset where I'd make a mistake and hit him. But, you know, that, that's, that's a bunch of crap. And my freedom of speech, I do believe in freedom of speech all the way. How else you going to know what's going on? And I do uh, do believe in people's protest because that's our American way. And another question I want to know is, uh, he was the gentleman on there was talking about uh, uh, municipalities and cities and, and, and different states have different laws. I want to know what the basic law of thumb is for the First Amendment right from the Constitution. Have they changed that or are they just overriding it or what's going on? Okay. Uh, thank you so much for their call. We appreciate it. Uh, Dean's any thoughts on his questions? Yeah, it's a great, a great question. So one thing I, I, I tell my students is that the, you know, the police can do whatever they get away with, right? That's the, that's the real world. And most police officers are good police officers and would never knowingly do anything they're not supposed to do, but sometimes they don't know the rules and, you know, human nature being what it is, occasionally you get a bad police officer. And I, you know, I, there used to be a town that I would go through that had a freestanding nativity scene up at Christmas, which many people think is fine, and people are entitled to their opinion, but that's that's actually unconstitutional. But if nobody sues, then then that's what happens, right? So we, there's, got, there's got to be enforcement mechanisms. The, the free speech doctrine that this fact situation that the caller was telling us about, the, the free speech doctrine at issue, I think is pretty much the fighting words doctrine. There's a there's a doctrine of unprotected speech called fighting words, which is, is dates back to the Chaplinsky case in 1942, and that's it's really the personal epithets describing an individual directed to that individual in a face-to-face encounter, and that is an unprotected category. So the cases uh, have you know, there's. Uh, 
precursors to Chaplinsky. They involve language that I won't say on the radio, right, even though it's a free speech show. But the, <laughs> that is an unprotected category, and it's, it's often punished under disorderly conduct or other sorts of things. Now, I'm not saying the speaker, the, the caller engaged in disorderly conduct, but I'm saying I think that's probably what's going through the police officer's mind. If this is speech and it's happening in front of somebody, that could cause an altercation, and that might be disorderly conduct. But I do think my, my sense of how the real world works is that a police officer is just trying to, as peace officers, trying to maintain public peace and prevent disorder, that they will often interpret that really broadly. And, of course, I've heard from students about uh, folks being arrested at different times for saying a curse word or something, which, of course, is, you know, if, if that's all it is, a curse word, that's not, that should not be a basis for arrest. That, that is a free speech violation. All right. Uh, we're going to go to the phones again. Randy is in Carthage with, with a comment. Good morning, Randy. What do you have for us? Um, hey, um, I, I'm not calling to get opinions on anything. I just want to ask a question. Um, I keep hearing all these stories. I'm a, I'm a church goer and a religious person, but um, about when a pastor or a church teaches um, things that are opposed to new cultural so- social laws that have been passed, that um, the day is coming when that's going to be considered hate speech or something, and that we're that in the church we're not going to be able to say what we believe. Um, about you know certain social and cultural things. Do you think that day is coming? Is that is that imminent? I mean, is that hate speech? That's an excellent question, Randy. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, nothing's harder to predict than the future, right? So I, I'm not sure that I have a good sense of where things are going. It does seem to me that speech rights have been restricted more, just in sort of as a matter of social dynamics. The the, the first thing I would say on this issue, though, is that there's Hate speech is not unprotected speech in the United States. That in most European countries, if it's actually considered hate speech, or say, let's say, racist speech, it is unprotected and subject to criminality. But the Supreme Court has been clear over and over again: that hate speech, hate crimes. Now, hate crimes where it's criminal conduct, that where there's a racial motive, that that is can be punished. But hate speech, right? You can be a neo-Nazi in the United States. In Germany, it's illegal to be a Nazi. In the United States, it's illegal for the government to make it illegal to be a Nazi. Hate speech is protected. It gets the highest level of constitutional protection. There's a te- test called strict scrutiny that applies. So even if you have uh, you know, cultural dynamics where, say, a, a statement that, that that homosexual conduct is immoral, which many traditional Christians believe, Bible Christians, you might say, believe I'm from Texas with lots of Bible Christians. Even if someone considered that to be hate speech, it would still be protected in the United States. And so whether that doctrine will change or not, I don't know. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the fact that we're an outlier among Western democracies in giving that kind of free speech protection? Could, could we move in a different direction? I certainly think that's possible. A lot will depend on who wins the next few presidential elections and the appointments to the court. But right now it's very clear that even if something is viewed as hate speech, it's protected. Now, if you have a racial motivation and you commit a crime, that racial motivation is not considered to be a thought or speech that gets protection. That's the, considered to be conduct of victim selection. So you can say something racist, and then if you commit a crime, that racist thing you said might be used to prove a racial motivation for a sentence enhancement, but the very fact that you said something that was racist, that what you said was is actually protected. And if you, if you look at the Westboro Baptist Church, for example, mm-hmm. I mean, they're allowed to say what they believe, you know, and uh, while many of us find it highly offensive, that is their right to say that, and uh, and so, I you know, I can't, I can't, I wouldn't predict the future either, but I can't mm-hmm. see a day when, when right. churches are regulated that way because 
you know, churches specifically are allowed right. to discriminate in terms right. of their membership. Snyder versus Phelps is the Westboro Baptist Church case from a few years ago. That was eight to one. And that was, was not, that was hate speech. It was also kind of hurt speech. I've called it in class. The court says hurtful speech is protected broadly. So the Westboro Baptist Church engaged in these very ugly funeral protests for soldiers who'd been killed, but they weren't visible from the funeral itself. Now, if they disrupted the funeral, there could be a tort of intentional infliction of emotional distress, but, but we had the, the father of a soldier who was tragically killed, and that father, he saw the protest on television, and not surprisingly, he was very, very upset by that, and he got a jury award of a large amount of money for the tort of intentional infliction of emotional distress, and the Supreme Court 8 to 1 said, that speech is protected. They didn't actually disrupt the funeral. So the, the hateful things and the hurtful things that, that folks say in the United States with a few limits on the edges is absolutely protected speech. All right, Randy, that was a great question. Thank you so much for that call. We're going to go next to Dudley, who's in Vardman with a question. Good morning, Dudley. Good morning. I have the question, does House Bill 1523, is this a form of speech, freedom of speech? So I would say that's an exemption to civil rights laws, uh, anti-discrimination laws, and doesn't really touch on the free speech issue. It's more about conduct. And the Supreme Court's been clear in a lot of cases, I guess Spalding is one of the cases, that the the fact that a discriminatory, um, you might say, philosophy, a viewpoint undergirds conduct does not turn the conduct itself into speech. So to take the extreme example, and I don't mean to connect this to, to that bill, but suppose you have someone who commits a crime they're a criminal. Suppose the person commits a crime in order to make a political statement. We say they're a criminal, or maybe we say they're a terrorist, depending on the, the kind of crime. And the fact that they've, they've tossed a hand grenade someplace to make a political statement doesn't change that from being a crime. So if, you, if, if you've got a member of the Klan, their Klan membership is protected speech and freedom of association. If they're an employer and they engage in race discrimination and employment, that violates federal and state civil rights laws. And they can say, well, but that's the expression of my Klan philosophy. And the answer is, well, you just engaged in discriminatory conduct that can be prohibited. So, so 1523, that, that bill is making exceptions for, against anti, to anti-discrimination laws. Uh, but it's not, it's not really presenting a free speech issue. And, of course, there's an argument that, it's a, that itself violates another provision of the, of the um, First Amendment, that it violates the Establishment Clause. There are equal protection issues. There are constitutional issues around that. But it doesn't really present exactly a free speech issue. But this is a serious question that courts have had to wrestle with. If discriminatory or if a philosophical viewpoint, especially a political one, motivates an act, does that give the act some kind of protection? And we're right back to hate speech versus hate crimes, for instance. And I'm not meaning to associate that necessarily with that bill, but hate speech is protected. A hate crime is not protected. If you're a Nazi, you've got a right to be a Nazi. If you're a Nazi who wants to vandalize a synagogue, you, you get no protection for that criminal vandalism just because you've got a philosophy, a political belief that's motivating it. All right. Dudley, thank you so much for your call. We appreciate thank it. You. All right. It's time for another break. When we get back, we'll continue the conversation about free speech. We'll talk a, lit, a, bit, a little bit about newer media, such as the Internet and Twitter, and how those uh, affect free speech issues. Also, what free speech issues are at stake in the presidential election this year? You can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING uh, to let us know your thoughts about free speech. Do you believe fully in the idea of free speech, or do you believe it should have its limits and restrictions? Do you think people should be able to post whatever they want on their social media 
pages. Are you a supporter of protests? Give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. All our lines are currently open, 877-672-7464, or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back in just a moment. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sharita Brent, joined by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law and Jack Nowlin, Senior Associate Dean, Professor of Law, and Jesse D. Puckett, Jr., Lecturer for the University of Mississippi School of Law. This morning we're talking about your free speech rights. Love for you to join the conversation with your comments and questions. Uh, Do you believe fully in the idea of free speech rights, or do you believe it should have some limits and restrictions? Do you think people should be able to post whatever they want on their social media pages? Do you agree with protesting under any circumstances? 877-MPB-RING is the number. We do have a couple lines open. The number is 877-672-7464 or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. Uh, so, Dean, now let's talk a little bit about, uh, I guess this is a personal question. Uh, you know, I studied journalism in schools. Um, are people like journalists and newspapers, are they held accountable at all for things that they put uh, in these various publications? Are they held to the same free speech standards or do they have a little more leeway to say and write whatever they want? Well, I think, I think the general First Amendment doctrine is you, you don't get special privileges of any kind because you're considered to be a journalist. And I think one of the reasons for that is just how would you determine who's a journalist? And that, that that's blurrier than it's ever been with blogs and all the yeah. sort of democratization of everything. But the – I mean the – I guess the accountability of journalists is it's mostly, you know, there's invasion of privacy, there's defamation law. Those in the United States are all very speech protective, but but you can go too far. I mean, we, we saw the Gawker controversy with the, the, the tape with Hulk Hogan, the wrestler. I mean, you, you can go too far. You can do things that don't have enough of a connection to any matter of public concern, or maybe it's about a figure that's not sufficiently public as a public figure. You can hit combinations of those where the free speech protections are running out and we're considering the speech to be not valuable enough and also harmful enough to individuals that we think this is an invasion of privacy or it's false light privacy or it is defamation. We have a very speech-protective regime, and the famous case of New York Times versus Sullivan in 1964 really established a very speech-protective defamation a law. So we have many more protections than, for instance, we had in the early 20th century or under English common law. But there, there is accountability. You can, you can, you can go too far uh, if, in some of these areas. All right, we have some calls to get to. Thomas is in union with a question. Good morning, Thomas. What do you have for us? Well, I have a question. There are some places where uh, political speech is uh, supposed to be protected, but like if I wanted to put a, a bumper sticker. For Trump in some places of the 
country that might uh, incite somebody to say something to me or uh, uh, or even at work if I if I was at some place where I wanted to support Trump uh, and the other it goes the other way too if you're somewhere in the south the people that want to support Clinton or are, are uh, afraid to speak up just because pri- other private citizens and people who know them are, are going to uh, give them a hard time about it. Uh, so it, it, it's it's not really the government that, that's limiting the free speech. It's the fact that other people are going to abuse you for uh, exercising your your free speech rights. Uh, the, and I've seen this happen where people will just bite their tongue. And I and there are many situations where I don't say what I I think because I know it's going to offend people or it's going to it could threaten my uh, my livelihood uh, because people won't come to my store. Or they they. I, I, I know where people get, don't get promoted because they've they've said things that the boss didn't like. Uh, what's the what's the level of protection for that sort of thing? All right, Thomas, that's a good question. Thank you. Yeah, so that's a fantastic question, and you know, in constitutional law, the First Amendment, the we have the state action doctrine, and it means that the First Amendment limits government, and so it doesn't limit private actors at all. So when we when so when constitutional lawyers like me are typically thinking about these issues, we're thinking about government censorship, but I mean the caller points to the social dimension of free speech. And if you go back to political theorists of freedom like John Stuart Mill from the 19th century, he was as concerned about other private actors in civil society. He was concerned as about these social issues as much as anything else. I mean if you imagine that you're, you know, let's say you're a Marxist and it's, you know, you're in, I don't know, 1955 in a small town in Kansas, right? I mean, how much, maybe the government's not going to censor you. Maybe in the 1950s they would have, but suppose the government doesn't censor you. As a practical matter, how free are you really to express those opinions? And, you know, there are all sorts of opinions folks have today, especially on the right-wing fringe and the left-wing fringe where, you know, you pay a huge cost uh, in terms of your livelihood and social ostracization for being socially ostracized for saying those things. And so that's, a, that's an important thing to think about. And it's those issues, it strikes me, are really difficult because the fact of the matter is if somebody's a neo-Nazi, I don't want to have anything to do with them, right? And if I had a business and I, I wouldn't want to hire a neo-Nazi if I could avoid hiring a neo-Nazi because that's not, that's not good for anybody. Uh, but, you know, what, what I've seen in my lifetime, I'm about to turn 50, so I'm officially middle-aged and I don't understand the world anymore. Uh, <laughs> the, the, you know, politics has changed and things are more polarized than ever. And there are lots of opinion polls that show this, that the Cass Sunstein, uh, who's a, a law professor and was in the Clinton administration, he has a, a, a new book and he's, he's talked about the concept of partyism, which is basically a kind of prejudice against people based upon their party affiliation. And there are polls now suggesting that folks are far more likely to be upset if they're a Democrat and their child marries a Republican or the reverse than was true, say, in the 1950s or 60s, which means there just there is a lot more polarization. And, uh, you know, this is all sub-constitutional because it's all about private actors, but it, it really does, I think, as a practical matter, undercut free speech. When you have political candidates, our two major party nominees, who are each, in a way, they have tremendously high negatives, and each one of those persons is hated, I think it's fair to say, by a significant portion of the country. It makes it very hard for supporters of those candidates to feel completely free to talk. I mean, I think in the 1950s, you could support Adlai Stevenson or or Eisenhower and not be too worried about the fallout from that in your personal life, but it seems to me less and less true. And of course, it's the caller 
is suggesting. It, it most hits people who are in the political minority. Hillary Clinton in Massachusetts, that might be great. Donald Trump in uh, Mississippi, that might be great. But there are, you know, you do the reverse, that's a problem. And then, of course, there are enclaves. I'm in academia. Uh, newsflash, academia leans to the left, right? It's, it's harder to be a Republican in academia than to be a Democrat. So lots of folks find themselves in some, you know, some workplace or, you know, a social circle where it's really hard to, to express uh, their 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 viewpoint and on the other hand it becomes difficult sometimes to fault people who have negative reactions because that's part of free speech so i mean we are in this the situation where you express an opinion somebody castigates you demonizes you maybe even for that opinion that's part of their exercise of free speech but of course that reaction or some would say overreaction is undercutting everybody's willingness to ex express free speech and we need to get to a point where just because somebody disagrees with you doesn't make them a bad person. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we're not at that point in this country. Mm -hmm. I mean, people are allowed to, reasonable people can disagree. Right. I want to hear opinions that are different from my right. own. But people get on the Internet and they can be in an echo chamber where they only hear mm -hmm. the same right. opinion over and over right. again that supports theirs. So anyone who disagrees with them must be bad. Yeah. And I think we need to grow out of that. And you think about the the influence of new technologies, the the Internet and things flowing from the Internet has been an incredible boon to free speech in the sense that it's democratized it. There's so, there's so much more opportunity for participation. I was, I was, when I was in college, I was very interested in politics. I was the kind of fun guy that hung out at the library and read political journals. And, you know, you, today, you know, you don't have to go to the library to do that. There is more things that, that you could read uh, just on the Internet. You can read on your phone. And so there's this incredible access now and this proliferation of opinions and viewpoints and all that's wonderful. But that's the positive side of the coin. The negative side of the coin is the Klan, the neo-Nazis, all those groups, right? Extremist groups are there. And the non-extremist groups where it's just polarization, it's people cocoon. Conservatives read conservative things. Liberals consume liberal things. And then people move towards the outer edges. And you wind up with two political parties that are very polarized. And I still think there are a lot of Americans who it's, it's a bell curve. There's a bunch of people who want a moderate candidate in the middle. But there's been so much polarization. The parties are dominated by the extremes. And I do think the new technology, as wonderful as it is, I think it is, it is a driver of the polarization. And we're seeing that in the nomination of the candidates. All right, we have a lot of calls to get to. We're going to go to Ray, who's in Hattiesburg, with a question. Good morning, Ray. What do you have for us? Yeah, I wanted to ask you. It's it has to do with free speech and probably political. Uh, what I'm seeing and, and, and really concerned about is just say a speaker comes to a campus. Well, I should have a right to hear him. They should be a he's got a right to speak or she, but I should have a right to listen without people interfering. And just like. Uh, and it spills over into, say, uh, where they blocking the highway to keep you from going to a political rally. Seems like they're blocking my free speech and free uh, right to hear it. I was always taught that your rights end it stopped at the end of my nose, but it seems like a lot of that's going away, and people are uh, uh, are trying to interfere. I, I think I want to listen to Bernie Sanders. I want to listen to Trump. I want to listen to Hillary, and I don't want anybody interfering with that. And I think they shouldn't be allowed to if those people have the floor. So I don't know if there's any laws to that, but it sure seems like a mess. So I'll hang up and you comment. Okay. Thanks, Ray. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there's a doctrine in American free speech law called the heckler's veto, and the heckler's veto is a bad thing. And what the heckler's veto is is here's a speaker. 
here are folks who don't like the speaker, and so they're, they're hecklers, right? They're, and they usually do more than heckle. They threaten disruption. And then what the government can do is connive with the hecklers and say, well, there's disorder here, and so we have to shut down the speech. And there's a whole series of Supreme Court cases starting in the 30s and 40s and a bunch more civil rights cases, as you can imagine, in the 1960s where you'd have essentially a – Government actors, a, a police department that's hostile to the civil rights protesters, the anti-civil rights protesters would show up. They would threaten some disorder. And, of course, then what the government would do is shut down the civil rights protest. And, of course, that is there, – there are tests and doctrines there. That is unconstitutional. But the government has to engage in basically reasonable efforts to control uh, the, the hecklers rather than shut down the speaker. But it doesn't always happen that way. Now, some of the universities are public universities that would be under this rule. Some of the universities out there that we see in the news media where these protests occur are private universities, and so the First Amendment's not applying to them. But principles of academic freedom apply there. And I think any, any university that's doing what it's what it ought to be doing controversial speakers will come and people will go to hear those controversial speakers and many people will go to to disagree with them but to listen with them and engage and if if folks think they shouldn't be on campus at all that seems to me to be for some of those speakers absolutely legitimate and what they can do is express that opinion they can express that opinion outside the event they can express that opinion inside the event but what we have seen and this has always happened some, but it, it does seem to me that it's, it's happened a little bit more the last few years. We see persons who don't – they really, at the end of the day, don't believe in free speech, at least for some subsection of controversial speakers, and they will disrupt the event. They will grab the microphone, and that violates, in, in my opinion, whether it's a, a constitutional issue or whether we're just talking about the social sphere of free speech, what ought to be – protected as a matter of good public policy. That violates the rights of the speaker. And as the caller says, he, in some cases, the, the speaker is, is, has rights, but they're a noxious person, right? Maybe we really don't like the speaker, but the, the, the listeners have rights. And the caller is absolutely right. That's a crucial part of free speech doctrine is the right of listeners. And so it may be that there's someone who believes something that I really disagree with, but I want to go hear them in person, and then I want to ask a reasoned question about you know, why I think they're wrong and how do they respond to these criticisms. And the protesters who decide unilaterally that no one should hear this, you know, they're, they're actually undercutting the rebuttal of that speech, right? When the, when the person who's on the extreme right or the extreme left who has viewpoints that we think are bad goes there, they're, they're actually shutting down the opportunity for that person to expose themselves as someone who has terrible ideas and to face reason criticism. So, you know, I, I, I agree completely with the caller. We've seen a lot of things on campus that I deplore, which is, is protesters who've unilaterally decided to move beyond normal legitimate protest and to move into the disruption of the event. And I think that that is a real loss for free speech. In some cases, it's unconstitutional for the authorities uh, to step in or fail to step in to protect the speakers. In other cases, I don't think there's a constitutional violation, but there's been a loss of, of academic freedom and free speech. All right, we need to take a quick break. When we get back, Melissa, Troy, Gabe, we'll get to you right after we get back from this break. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sharita Brent, joined by Professor Richard Gershon and Associate Dean and Professor of Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law, Jack Nowlin. Uh, we've been talking a lot about your free speech rights, and uh, we have a couple more calls to get to. Still some time for you to join the conversation. 877-MPB-RING is the number. Do you believe fully in the idea of free speech, or do you believe it should have some limits? Do you think folks should be able to post whatever they want on their social media pages? 877-MPB-RING is the number. We do have a couple lines open. Uh, we're going to Melissa first, then Troy. Melissa is in Ocean Springs. Good morning, Melissa. What do you have for us? Good morning. Um, I have a question about um, uh, Donald Trump and his campaign. He seems to have um, exhibited a great um, response, a strong response whenever he receives negative criticism. Um, and I, I and I guess everyone else who's on his email list received an email declaring um, that he has two opponents, not just Hillary Clinton, but the um, the media. Um, and my question is, you know, we all know that once someone is the president, um, that they probably hear more negative things about themselves than they do hear positive things. And I'm wondering what would happen. How would the um, checks and balances respond to someone, be it Democrat or Republican or anyone, um, holding the executive office, trying to quash those kinds of negative reactions. I mean, we've, we've seen that in a country like Turkey, even before the coup, um, where um, President Erdogan was arresting people who were insulting him. Um, and I'm kind of nervous about a slippery slope here with some of the things he's saying in his campaign. So and I know this is a hypothetical, but my question is, if something like that were to happen from the executive branch, um, what would the response be and what could the other bodies of government do to protect speech? All right, Melissa, thank you for that question. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. So, um, presidents receive a lot of criticism, right? That's something that that we know happens, and um, you know they manage the criticism different ways. Special relationships with the press; they can limit press uh, access. They can they can give inform, inside information to favored press outlets. Uh, Republican presidents will be more friendly with Fox News and Democratic presidents may be more friendly with CNN. Uh, the, obviously, the president can't do anything that actually suppresses criticism without violating the Constitution, and I, I don't know that there would be any need for any new legislation on that. I mean, it's clear that the president can't, you know, quash criticism, can't issue an executive order silencing critics, and I, I don't – Donald Trump might do a lot of things as president. I, I don't think he would do that, right? I don't think he would do that. That would be – Dead on arrival. That's that's clearly unconstitutional. But it, it does raise this broader question of, of presidential relations with the media and you know media bias. We've had the you know recent news stories about um, Twitter has been accused of banning um, some users because they are conservative. Facebook has been accused of in its trending section manipulating the, the trending section to favor and disfavor stories politically. There are constant complaints about media bias, usually from conservatives, but sometimes from, from liberal groups. And, you know, th- those are all of those are subconstitutional issues. They involve, you know, private actors. They're not the government trying to regulate speech. But it, it, it does raise broad questions of, you know, 
how reliable is the media, the, the, the mainstream media shapes our, our political discourse. And, you know, the, the uh, social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter are incredibly influential. And I, it's a really complicated and interesting uh, debate. Um, I think for, for me, one of the, the major issues is just do we know what we're getting? So, uh, you know, there are the there, there's a line in the Maltese Falcon where Humphrey Bogart says, well, you lied to me, but it didn't matter because I didn't believe you anyway. Right. I mean, you, you've got, you know, the New York Times says all the news that's fit to print and Fox News says fair and balanced you decide. And but surely everybody knows that there's a political tilt in those media outlets. I think the, the more concerning thing is if someone feels that the media is overwhelmingly tilted in one direction and maybe there's undue influence. You get another version of that with, you know, corporate expenditures on candidates. There's another thought there that, you know, private corporations use the corporate form to generate a lot of money, and then they do expenditures in favor of candidates that are pro-corporate interest, and then we look at that and say, well, maybe that's undue influence for those corporations. Uh, liberals tend, I think, to be concerned about big business, so their focus is on undue corporate influence. And the Citizens United case, the conservatives tend to think that the mainstream media has too much influence, undue influence, and there's not really a legislative solution for that, but there are complaints about that. And then when you get to Twitter and Facebook, they've been accused of things. They, they deny those, right? They're, they're not admitting that they've done anything wrong, and maybe they haven't done anything wrong. But I think on the, the Facebook accusations that the trending section was manipulated, if, if that's true, I think that, and it may not be, but if that's true, I think that's probably problematic just because I think most folks were not aware that was being manipulated. Now, let let me jump to, to our last yeah. call, Dean. Uh, yes. Gabe is in Ridgeland. And Gabe, we have about a minute left. Go ahead with your comment. Sure, Rita. Yeah, it was great to talk to you. I'll make it quick. Um, <laughs> It's a, I think it's interesting that on an episode where we're talking about free speech tend to end up with a couple of rather long-winded guests. But uh, I'll, I'll move on to my question. We've been talking about neo-Nazis and political candidates and all that sort of, you know, quasi-important stuff. But I have something much more important to ask very quickly. As someone who works in retail, what can I do about my employees who have these extremely offensive LSU stickers on their cars? As an Ole Miss fan, obviously I find this tragic. So let's get to that real quick before we close out the show. Thanks. All right, Gabe. Thank you. Uh, Professor, we have about 15 seconds left. I believe in free speech, even for LSU fans, though it pains me to say that. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Dean Nolan. Now, and I'm going to get your name right one day for joining us. Uh, Dean Gershon, thank you for joining us as well. If you didn't get to call, you can send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Don't forget, we do have a podcast. If you go to mpbonline.org, you can find it there. If you have iTunes, you can get us that way as well. And we're uh, going to wrap this on up. Jonas Adams, thank you for being my board opportunity. Operator. Sam Wells was our call screener. Stay tuned. Southern Remedy with Dr. Susan Butchers is coming up next right here on MPB Think Radio.